All the women involved were doing amazing, innovative work in the late 70s in what was to become categorized as sound art in the years to come. Yet you don't find a single mention of them in most books, or if you do, it's very peripheral. So these women were basically written out of the sound art canon. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Jennifer Waits. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein. And today on the show, we're talking about sound art. Our guest, Judy Dunaway, is an artist and adjunct professor in the History of Art Department at Massachusetts College of Art and Design. She recently published a fascinating article about the history of sound art, which highlights important contributions by female artists. Thanks so much for joining us today, Judy. Thanks for having me. So I, I thought we would start with the basics, and I was hoping you could explain to us what sound art is. Well, <laughs> uh, you can find definitions of sound art online at reputable sources like uh, the Tate Britain's website or Oxford Music Online and things like that. I've not been so interested in defining it as I have been interested in looking at the etymology of the term, how the term evolved. I mean, like, what is a hamburger? Is it a beef patty or is it beef and pork? I mean, it does say ham, right? <laughs> does it does it require a bun to be called a hamburger? That's so really this type yeah. this type of thinking is is kind of uh, circular and boring to me. So because you know, gaining control of a term has a certain exclusionary hierarchical power, like a restaurant claiming to serve the original hamburger recipe, or you know. Um, the original Ray's Pizza, if, you, <laughs> if you've ever been to New York. There's like hundreds of restaurants that claim to have the original Ray's Pizza. I, I would rather look at how the term evolved, and to me that says more about it. So the history of the term makes these kind of power structures evolving out of people co-opting the term more clear. Um, okay, so the absolute earliest use I found of the term used in print, the term sound art, as, you know, a hybrid term, a high, you know, two words together, sound art. The earliest use I found in print um, to describe an artistic work is from a very, a very obscure writer named Ernest Leogrand. And he was writing a piece about the artist Max Newhouse in the New York Sunday News which was later to become the New York Daily News. But he was writing this in 1973. Now, Mr. Leo Grand was a generic arts reporter who wrote about everything from movies to disco clubs. I found a review he did of Studio 54. Nice, I love that. <laughs> so, so the fact that he's using the term sound art does not mean that he coined the term. What, what it means is he's reflecting back his conversations with Max Newhouse about the Newhouse piece, Walkthrough, which was a sound installation in a subway station in New York City at the time. And Leo Grant ah. was interviewing, was talking to Newhouse about this piece, and Newhouse was using this term. Leo Grant also mentions Newhouse's drive-in music in this context. I don't know if you're familiar with that piece because it's an early transmission artwork. No, tell us about it. Well, uh, this is kind of a digression, but right. <laughs> um, it was. And again, no, I, we I don't love digressions here on. Radio. I don't remember all the details, but it was a it was a, a an art gallery in upstate New York, 
and you would go to the gallery and get the directions of where you were to drive and you drove down this strip of highway near the gallery and Max Newhouse had installed oh, I don't know how many I want to say like 10 or 15 um, different little uh, low-power radio transmitters along the sides of the highway so that when you tuned into a certain frequency as you pass these different transmitters you would hear um, tones these were just you know like oscillator tones that were being transmitted by the different transmitters so that, you sort of heard this piece as you drove along the highway as the different little transmitters faded in and out that is so amazing that is like exactly the kind of thing that we love hearing about on the show <laughs> um I, yeah i definitely want to research that more that's so cool so yeah, so we made called- you it's called drive-in music. Anyway, but anyway, but I digressed. Um, anyway, we were talking about the term sound art. And so right. Ernest Leo Grand, this guy who, you know, was usually uh, at the movies or Studio 54, he's, he's gone down in the subway. This weird artist is like making this piece in the subway. It was, uh, you know, making some kind of sounds in the, su- in the subway. Um, and uh, it was called, again, what did I say? It was called Walkthrough. Um, and so Leo Grand is, is interviewing Max Newhouse, and Max Newhouse is using the term sound art. Well, that's the first incident that I can find of it in print. Now, this jives with my conversations with the late William Hellerman, who was a friend of Newhouse's, who told me that Max Newhouse had adopted the term in the 1970s to describe his work. Now, I don't know if Max Newhouse coined the term, probably not, but, but he, certain, he, he, he certainly co-opted it. So the term was also apparently being applied to sound poetry around that time and maybe experimental music as well. Um, a lot of people uh, have referred to 1974's Something Else Yearbook, um, which was a, a series of, of well, the something else yearbooks were put out by this guy, Dick Higgins, that was involved with Fluxus. Anyway, so this was actually the very last one of 1974, and it had the term sound art on the cover along with a lot of other descriptive categories. So it doesn't tell you which works go in which categories, and there are a massive number of works in that book, but the the book includes sound poetry, um, a fluxus sound piece, and it also includes I Am Sitting in a Room by Alvin Lussier and, and a sonic meditation by Pauline Oliveira. So, you know, could be loosely applied to any of those things. But anyway, I, I haven't nailed down any hard documentation before Ernest Leo Grand. <laughs> um, I say that one day I'd like to write an article about Leo Grand himself because he seems to be a rather tragic character who was immersed in the New York City arts and club scenes and he never married and he died in the early 80s, which has certain implications. And then he just sort of disappears in the ether. So anyway. Yeah, it's I mean, it must be fascinating going down all these different research rabbit holes. Another important character in like that that lost generation. Yeah, yeah. And and just... um, yeah, yeah, it's the joy of, of working in an archive, right? <laughs> Such a boring-looking place, but uh, so much cool stuff you find. So much magic in there. Yeah, um, it's fascinating to me, the, all these different ways that sound art could be understood and that it's coming from a variety of disciplines, potentially. And I'm curious, what got you interested initially into sound art? Well, 
<laughs> that's pretty broad, but um, but I, I guess I would start with my work as a guitar player. I'd started out uh, with an interest in folk music when I was a kid, and then that moved on to classical, and also I dabbled around with jazz, like those, I don't know if you ever heard of those Jamie Abersole plus one things, <laughs> you play jazz along with the record. Anyway, so I was no. doing all that, <laughs> so I was doing all that, you know, but I was really young, you know, teenager, and and then I just bailed on everything. I grew up in Mississippi, so I needed to get the hell out of Mississippi because it's a ridiculously oppressive and backward place even today. So I got on a bus and I came to New York City. <laughs> I really did. Wow. I got, I got on a Greyhound bus. It took like, I don't know, what is it, like two days solid on the bus, maybe a little more. Um, so I lived, I, I lived in downtown New York City. And I got involved in the downtown free improv scene. And so free improv was kind of my first uh, excursion into experimental sound work. So, I mean, I was in downtown Manhattan in the 80s. So all kinds of stuff was happening around me, you know, um, from Keith Haring and Basquiat to John Zorn to... Steve Reich to, you know, to them, there was still a lot of the fluxes. People were still around, like Namju Pike. I mean, there were, everything was going on, and I didn't know anything. I was totally, I was, you know, I just fell off the turnip truck, right? <laughs> I can't I, even imagine how exciting that must, I mean, that's, well, it, was it must have been such a crazy. dream for you. Um, uh, it, was, it was really rough. <laughs> it was really harsh. Wow. It was a really well, harsh place. But I learned about, I, I learned about avant-garde music on the streets, <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. It's well, a funny place to learn about avant-garde well, music. But, that was yeah. the question I was going to ask Judy Dunaway. Like, when was the first, when was the first time you encountered sound art in the wild? You don't even have to have known it was sound art, but maybe now looking back, you know that you were experiencing sound art in New York City in the eighties. Well, I think you, you know, then you're going to have to like nail down a definition of sound art, I guess. So I don't, I don't have a definition of it. I would say an examination of of sound in a conceptual sense. I mean, I, I don't know what. I mean, that could even be from childhood. I, you know, but I mean, in New York City, like I said, it was just all these these things around me at the time. Um, I was very impressed with, I, it was funny because I, I, I was first exposed to Namjoon Pike's work um, through a friend of mine who had a bunch of uh, videos. They had shown some of the Pike videos on television and he had videotaped them. That was my introduction to Pike. So I, w- I would say maybe if you want to have some kind of hard definition of sound art, I would say Pike. Um, and what was cool was... Uh, because I was in New York by 1980, what was it, 1986, maybe? I was organizing a concert by um, Charlotte Mormon. Are you familiar with Pike's work? She was his muse, so. Yeah, why don't you talk, talk a little bit about these two artists for us? Oh, do you want me to tell you about Namjoon Pike and Charlotte Mormon? Sure. Oh, my God. Oh, well, I wasn't prepared to do that. Namjoon Pike is like the father of video art and charlotte mormon was a cellist was his muse so judy one of the many things i'm interested in talking to you about is your particular sound art 
And I know that you use balloons, which is a really fascinating practice and sound art. So if you could maybe talk a little bit about that and what drew you to using balloons. So um, I'm primarily known for my numerous works for latex balloons as sound producers. I do these things which I call sculptural sonic performances, uh, where I play different balloons as instruments, as musical instruments, but not music as you would think of, you know, playing a tune on a, a piece of grass or something, but, but more um, avant-garde work, um, exploring and digging into the inherent uh, qualities of the sound maker. I primarily use the balloons in three facets. Um, well, these days only two. My main instrument is uh, the tenor balloon. So the tenor balloon uh, is a, a large balloon, like about the size of, you know, typical beach ball, I guess, you know. It functions as an orb-shaped string. If you imagine a violin string, you know, held taut at either end by um, or a guitar string, at, you know, at the nut and the bridge. And then you imagine somehow, instead of it being held taut on either end, you know, at the tuning peg and, you know, the bridge, then you imagine instead it's being held taut, it's spun out, it's melted, and it's held taut by a column of air on the interior. So then you have this string that is essentially an orb. So then I wet my hands and I play the string in all the different facets that I can get from it. You know, um, it's also, it's got nodes a bit like a timpani drum. It's got, you know, it's got harmonics like a string and I slap a, a, a little pickup on it to amplify it. Uh, so, I mean, actually in a small room, it doesn't need amplification, but I don't usually play a room quite that small. (laughs) So your, your answer, Judy, about balloons and playing balloons leads me sort of like a broad question about sound art. You're describing what feels to me like a musical performance in, Mm -hmm. you know, in a, in an outsider sort of way, you know, you're playing a balloon as a musical instrument and that's, that's happening live. When I think about sound art up until this interview, I always considered it um, a part of like uh, recording and transmissions, but I'm totally self-taught by this podcast. You know, uh, we we learned about sound art here while doing the Radio Survivor podcast um, exactly three years ago. Wasn't is that was the we actually marked the date because we had a guest that that taught us the term, and so um, so so that's my understanding of it. Can you can you unwind well, would, my the knot I would that I just say- made? I would just say that it somehow interrogates the concept of sound. Yeah, and so sometimes and so, people. Are... So I, I think it. I think that that makes it very broad. Um, and you could also say, of course, I think what you're talking about is more in the nature of field recording, to art somewhat. But you know, it it doesn't really matter. Um, it, I would. That's why I call these things sculptural sonic performances. I don't call them music. There's no there's no music school that would allow me to, you know, um, play what a am balloon. I to say? Pl- play yeah, a balloon. Learn. R- yeah, right. It's right. not it's not it's not taken seriously. I mean, they're not going to hire me to come in and and teach the students to play the balloon, and they're not going <laughs> to. 
anyway, but I mean, beyond that, it, well, I just have to explain more about my practice for you to understand that. Okay. So anyway, so yeah, I perform with them and I also do sound installations. So that might be more what you think of as sound art. And yeah, and I have, well, my transmission art stuff doesn't usually relate to my balloons. Usually my transmission art stuff is a separate category of work. But, um, yeah, it occurs to me that you were asking about my balloons. Yeah. It occurs to me that I should get out more because the more, (laughs) the more I left my house, the more I would understand sound art to be a live performance, not just a, not just a recording that I get to access. um, Well, I'll get more into that. Maybe I'll get more into that as I explain things. So the original question was what drew me to using balloons and people are always asking me, why do you play balloons? Why balloons? <laughs> why balloons? Everybody asks that. So I was discussing before, um, I began using balloons as a preparation on my guitar in the late 80s, you know, when I was downtown New York. Um, and the idea to use balloons comes out of obvious sources. I was in downtown New York City. I was surrounded by a rich avant-garde culture. I was living in the shadow of John Cage, the Fluxus movement, other avant-garde movements. I was in the free improv music scene where any sound was acceptable as music, sort of in the John Cage tradition, but also related to free jazz. But, you know, but why did they become a singular focus? So here's the short version. So what drove me to make balloons more than just a sound maker in my arsenal of effects and to make them a singular focus was the AIDS crisis. In the late 80s and early 90s, I was living in New York City, and many people, including my friends, were dying from AIDS. And no one knew how to prevent the spread of the disease. And then it was discovered that latex condoms could prevent people from contracting HIV. Right. Now, this this was when my obsession with using latex balloons as sound conduits began. I trace it back to that in reflection. Because repression had been a major factor in delaying the dissemination of proper information about prevention. So I knew that I had to approach these balloons without any inhibition. So this non-judgmental relationship to sound and how that manifests in a visual sense remains the cornerstone of my work. And I think that's the core of it. Though, of course, balloons are just an incredible sound maker. I mean very rich. I mean, and why play guitar when I could play a balloon? I mean, there were a lot of circumstantial events that made that path more attractive. For example, there are a lot more guitar players than balloon players, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, um, but, and people were just interested in what I was doing and opportunities for presenting themselves. But I think without that fire under ass specter of death and without that psychosexual artistic thing, and the need to have something that gave me a medium free of inhibition, I don't think I would have had that passion to stick with them. But I think I think that there's a certain feminist aspect to my work, a certain mm, there's a certain aspect to my work that, that is more than than someone playing a, a violin. It's 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 um it's a separate history. It's, it's um, a history, it's, it's free of tradition. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's incredibly beautiful, too, the way you articulated that. 
Judy, you talk about your practice having some feminist aspect to it. And and that brings me to part of the reason I reached out to you today was it's been very important to me to share stories on Radio Survivor about women's contributions to audio. And, and often women are written out of official histories, you know, across every discipline. Yep. So I was I was pretty excited to read your piece about the forgotten 1979 Museum of Modern Art Sound Art Exhibition. And that was a recent piece in Resonance, the Journal of Sound and Culture. And so I appreciate that you are talking about this kind of lost history and how women were really at the forefront of sound art. So I'd love to hear more about your interest in investigating the history of this exhibit um, and also how women helped define the sound art movement. Okay, so earlier in the interview, I was talking about the history of the term sound art. Okay, so the first instance of the hybrid term sound art used as the title of an exhibition at a major museum, all those qualifiers, right. was, was, a, was called, it was an exhibition called Sound Art. Sound Art, that's it, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And it was shown uh, from June 25th to August 5th, 1979. And curator Barbara London selected the work of three women artists as examples of this new form, even though it wasn't marketed as a feminist exhibition in any way. I think that's pretty cool in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so the, the three women that she chose were Maggie Payne, Connie Beckley, and Julia Hayward. Maggie Payne created multi-speaker works that utilize space in a sculptural fashion. Um, Connie Beckley combined language and sounding sculptural objects, sort of showing sound in both a conceptual and physical manifestation. And Julia Hayward's work used aspects of feminist performance art, including music and narrative and the voice in order to buck abstract aesthetics of the time. So in the Sound Art exhibition, Barbara London stakes out three main tributaries of what was then and has since then been called sound art. One, sound sculpture and installation in the visual art tradition, um, often with music used only as a component in a larger examination of sound. So sound sculpture, sound installation in the visual art tradition, you know, in the gallery. Then Another uh, tributary, you will call it, is multi-speaker sound installation, um, particularly via the academic music tradition as a way to create an immersive sound experience outside the concert hall, like usually immersive sound experience in a gallery. And then the third, and least addressed probably, is performance presented in a visual arts context with a focus on sound. And that could be sound poetry, sound performance, various multimedia forms. So shall I tell you about the pieces? Sure. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I love the way you map that out and that and that sound art is coming from a variety of disciplines, which is sort of the way I understand it now. You know, these people coming from visual art, people coming from music, people coming from performance. Um, and it's very interesting how it's all coming together in this exhibition. Um, the pieces were, okay, Connie Beckley's The Note, um, which, 
it's a beautiful piece. It's uh, a speaker, uh, a driver, if you know what a driver is, just the, the guts of a speaker uh, inside a big glass bottle on a, sitting on top of a plant, kind of like a ship in a bottle, but instead it's a speaker in a bottle. And then there's also a speaker on the wall and there's this uh, interchange between this panning between the speaker and the wall and the speaker inside the bottle um, and a text that goes with it. And you, I can't just describe it to you easily, but it's a really beautiful piece. So it has a visual element and a sound element um, very much uh, conceptually related to each other. And sound is the cornerstone of that work. And then you have Maggie Payne's Lunar Dusk and Lunar Earthrise, which were um, just, play, regretfully, were just played back on stereo speakers in the space. But Maggie Payne's known for her, you know, she's groundbreaking pioneer in, in multi-speaker spatial work, electronic music. So initially the, the pieces were designed for a quadraphonic system and they were supposed to have these slides that went with them, but things, you know, anyway, but, but as it was, but these, the two pieces that were presented were lunar earthrise and lunar uh, dusk. And then the third piece was a, uh, listed as a piece called Organ Grinder, but it was actually four pieces on a cassette on audio, on auto rewind. Um, Keep Moving Buddy, It's Raining Blood, Bury Me in 2001, and Apocalypso. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's, her work is, Hayward's work is conceptual, so it's hard to sum up briefly. The pieces weren't all well represented in the exhibition, like I was saying. Payne didn't have the quadraphonic system or slide projection she should have been given. And Hayward's situation is kind of mysterious and everyone's tight-lipped about what happened. But I think she wasn't allowed to perform or show video of performance works. But rather she was just given this sort of pathetic tape, uh, tape playback thing. But that's just my tape, take on it because nobody, nobody will tell me anything. Um, but her performance and video work are, quote-unquote, sound art in the truest sense, and that they are conceptual examinations of sound. But there are, were a lot of obstacles and misconceptions that didn't get overcome in 1979. <laughs> I mean, it was just way ahead of its time. And Beckley's work was probably the most accurately represented. Um, Payne's work was so strong that it worked with the two-speaker playback and no visual material. I, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but... I'm curious because you were talking about, you know, Maggie Payne, you know, she had wanted to have the quadraphonic sound. Do you think there were challenges in a, a visual art gallery in in figuring out how to do all the audio visual that was important to these pieces? I think it's more complicated than that. I'm I'm imagining I'm making up drama in my head, but <laughs> I'm imagining that women who are experts at setting up sound in 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 public were not um, were not treated like experts by by I'm going to just go out on a limb and assume that the people who who had jobs at the museum to set up a speaker were were men who might have mm. not made them feel welcome or comfortable to set up their own speaker. Uh, mm. That that just might be a projection based on some other conversations we've been having recently about uh, women in sound professionally. You know, I think it was it was just two weeks ago that we talked. We were talking about how um, in the year twenty twenty one, many women are not 
made to feel welcome in a professional sound space that is male dominated. Right. Yeah. It it still happens where women who know their equipment very well have men trying to explain to them how to work their own equipment, for example. You're telling me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure this is not a surprise. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like you've really had to reconstruct what happened because, um, you know, this this is your work in this piece, in this written piece um, about this exhibit, is you really had to dive in and, and excavate these stories of this exhibit. There were all kinds of issues. One, that the museum didn't have any concept of sound art. I mean, so the curator, Barbara London, was kind of trying to sell this idea to them. I think she didn't want to present it in a way that they misconstrued it as another art form. So I think she was dealing with that and and how, and she didn't want the audience to misconstrue it as another art form. So um, I think there was some hesitation in having visual elements. Interesting. So I, I think she was um, perhaps too cautious in that sense because now we know after, you know, 40 years later that, of course, the visual element can be very supportive of the concept of sound. Um, so I think there was the element of that. And also, I think because it was this new form that, yeah, the, it was a low priority for, for MoMA at the time. And I don't think they gave it as much attention and probably money and resources as it could have had, you know. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think Maggie Payne was, Maggie Payne didn't push to have it quadraphonic. When they, when they told her, oh, well, we just have two speakers, then she was like, okay, you know. I'll mix it down to two. And she did a hell of a job. She, <laughs> It sounds like quad when you hear it. It's so good. Wow. You know, she's like, I'll show you. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but, of course. That's uh, great. Yeah. But yes, but she, but yeah, she did say quad to start with. And then they gave her two speakers. And, hmm. and she was shy to tell them that there was a visual element. I don't think she ever told them that there was a visual element particularly considering, you know, they had already cut her down to two speakers, you know. And I don't know what happened happened with Hayward, but if you look, as I talk about in my paper, if you look at Hayward's work, God Talks, from that same era, that's such a perfect piece. I mean, it's a piece where Hayward is, is using ventriloquism to express this idea of sound, okay? And... I mean, and she's not moving her lips. And it's, you you have to have a performative element in order to convey that idea. But is it music? No. Is it poetry? No. <laughs> you know, but because it's performance, suddenly, oh, it went into the wrong area. You know, because you know who do, you know who does performance? Not, not men. Men don't do performance art. You oh. know. You know, and, and meaning is verboten, <laughs> you know, you want something pure, you know, so, uh, yeah, so that, that is, that's very interesting to me, and, and, and part of my, my premise of the paper is that once you venture into the, the area of meaning, then you, you get outside of what, uh, 
the historians who've who sort of set up this canon over the last 20 years, you, you venture beyond that. You're something else. Yeah, I can see why the naming and the defining, I can see why that is so important to you as you interrogate all of this and how there's power in these labels. Um. Well, okay. So because the exhibition was mammoth in its foreshadowing of what was to come, and yet every book written about the subject ignored or marginalized it in, in the last 20 years, okay? So all, all the women involved were doing amazing, innovative work in the 70s and the late 70s in what was to become categorized as sound art in the years to come. Yet you don't find a single mention of them in most books, or if you do, it's very peripheral. So these women were basically written out of the sound art canon, okay? Or they weren't even written out. They were never put in to start with. Um, my theory is that these writers and academics and curators that were publishing these books were defending their own turf. They didn't want to vary too far from the minimalist trajectory and from the trajectories set up by the financially powerful um, Klankunst curators in Europe. Mm. Um, so they had their own agendas. And if if they noticed the discrepancy, they weren't willing to risk their ass to correct it. So then little old me wrote a paper and I said, oh, hi, the king is naked. And, you know, <laughs> Yay! It, it got published in this little hot new University of California Press Journal. So God bless them. Um, and then, you know, COVID happened and Black Lives Matter happened. And this piece became even more pertinent in showing how enforcing this minimalist discourse could be discriminatory. In other words, if you are restricted to using sound for the sake of sound, detached from meaning, then you are stripped of any identity. So artists that associated sound with meaning were cut out. Now, it's not applicable to current work as much as it is in the writings about the history of the form. I mean, it sounds like a digression, but I don't think it is. I mean, is early rap and hip-hop sound art? Right, because it was... It, yeah, it had all those elements that we've been that we've been rattling around during the podcast, where it's performance, but it's also uh, pre-recorded. It's also extremely exciting how early hip hop um, innovated the use of of stereo gear in ways that it was exactly. not designed to do. Like the the very idea that they were <laughs> wiring two turntables together and with the mixer and. And scratching the record is is a, a very strange and innovation. Prepared with the sound. Voice, yeah. Experiments with uh, the voice, ex experiments with sound, you know, exploring sound as, as sound is not merely, not only a note-based kind of Western, you know, form. And but it wasn't part of the museum. It right. wasn't in the art they gallery. Also, they also took over, part, they took over yeah. outdoor spaces, which is one of the most exciting things to me, especially locked up in my home this year. Like, they, you know, they, they, they brought the sound outside in, into the streets to share with their community. Right. And you know, there's all this writing by Michael Veal about dub culture and stuff that you should have a look at about that as well. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, so categories are power. So somebody's trying to keep their college teaching job or their curator job or whatever. So, you know, you want to just keep it in this, you know, um, Alvin Lucier, um, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Bernard Leitner kind of <laughs> trajectory of what wow. well, what you think sound art is. I don't, I don't know who those people are. Are you comfortable 
explaining the the difference because you're saying that explaining minimalism yeah yeah and and how how it's being challenged by this version of sound art that you've put down in your article well i think the paper is somewhat in a reaction to the the other writings that are out there about sound art so you you have you kind of need a sense of what other people have been saying and what the other books are about the subject and do you know what i'm saying yeah so yeah but i guess yeah i I mean i guess if we haven't read and our audience hasn't read that um you're trying you're trying to expand the the canon and expand the idea of what sound art is and and make sure that these women have a place in that history, which I think is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely to make these three women, I mean, that it's just obscene that they were left out, that this exhibit was, that this exhibition was just cut out of the books and it was very convenient. It didn't fit what they didn't fit what these people wanted to project. So they just skipped over it. Well, it's it's very inspiring, and and I and I feel like every time a piece like this is written, hopefully it inspires more people to do the same type of work, so that we mm, yeah. hear more of these stories. Yeah. Um, so we have that rich history about about women's contributions. So, so thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate learning about about these artists, and I'm going to take like a little bit of a left turn because I'm also excited to talk to you a bit about transmission art and you know we've been talking a lot about all these definitions of sound art and and I guess you know on Radio Survivor I'm interested in all sorts of or we are interested in all sorts of audio art and that can take a lot of different forms one of which is transmission art and so I was excited to hear about this project you did in the 90s duo for radio stations where um, you were involved you know, there were performances over WFMU and WKCR simultaneously. And there are aspects of it where it it was kind of a fake radio show, but you also had these dual streams that listens that listeners could tune into simultaneously. So I'm wondering if you could take us back a little bit and talk about what this was. Because um, I don't know if I've heard of many projects like this where you would listen to two radio stations at the same time to get this kind of cohesive artistic experience and I love the idea well like I was talking about earlier with the Charlotte Mormon thing even though you didn't know who Charlotte Mormon was but uh, you know as I was talking about you know like one one week I'm 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 learning about this the father of video art Namjoon Pike and some friend is showing me videos that he bootlegged off PBS and then the next week I'm I'm organizing a concert by his muse. I mean, <laughs> that was New York in the 80s for me, right? So great. <laughs> these, these opportunities are just like, you know. Um, so, okay. So a little bit of context for Duo for Radio Stations. Okay. In the really olden days, prior to the 1980s, which I am old enough to remember, um, small town commercial radio stations weren't part of corporate chains. Okay, they were local operations that featured locally produced programs, local announcers, music programming reflecting local tastes, things like that. And I had worked in one of these stations as a teenager, 
And I was sad to see them all flush down the toilet due to Reagan-era policies in the 1980s. So then in the early 90s, it just so happened that, you know, now I'm in New York, okay. So in the early 90s, it just so happened that I had friends working at two nonprofit radio stations in the same broadcasting area in New York City who had shows at the same time. Oh, wow. Matt Matt (laughs) at WFMU and Uppsala College in uh, New Jersey, and Tony Coulter at WKCR at Columbia University. And things were still freewheeling enough back then that I was able to commandeer both shows in order to produce my piece, Duo for Radio Stations. And like you said, I think, it was the surrealist version of a half-hour live radio show on one of the old local small-town radio stations. It had commercials, it had a talk show, it had jingles, it had a gospel group at the end, but it was all done in this non-typical way, reflective of the avant-garde scene that surrounded me at the time. So, like you said, it exists as two separate pieces, one on FMU, one at KCR, or you could, or you could listen to it as a single work experienced by listening to both stations at the same time. Um, and the piece involved 14 live musicians. Uh, so uh, one group at wow. FMU, one at KCR. Um, I also had uh, 20 tape creations that were used, you know, like a certain number, you know, at each station. Um, I also had a guy named Tamio Shirashi, very interesting saxophone player uh, who was in Japan at the time. We, I, I known him, he was in New York and he'd gone back to Japan and he called me at like four in the morning from a bar in uh, Tokyo to, to play saxophone and sing in this piece. <laughs> so that's like another element of transmission art. Um, I love that. And, and, um, and, and so, yeah. yeah. And stations stations at the time were doing more things over the phone like that. So I love that oh, you yeah, incorporated yeah. that too. That's so great. Yeah. So it was all this like interaction with the, the tapes and the recordings and the improvisers improvising with each other and with the, you know, the stuff at each station. And uh, I was I was at KCR kind of conducting from KCR, but also using the phone to call out at, at FMU. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know it had free improv it had electronic transmissions um i mean it had like i say it had all these tape creations like these i had made these special radio jingles that we played during the piece Was it like entirely separate pieces happening on each station or? Yeah. uh, So then it was um, the listener's ear was then experiencing kind of the uh, what what happens when these two performances are are played simultaneously rather than an intentional simul. uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to get my head around, you know, so it's not like people were improving across the radio waves. It's more that... um, you're hearing a combination of these two separate performances. Yeah, but yet we're in contact with each other. So you don't you you might hear you might hear one side of it, but it's still a piece in and of itself, but even though it has it has connections to what's going on at the other station. I'm just but imagining. You don't you don't, ha- you don't have to hear both sides of it. I'm you imagining myself one. as like a super listener like you know, having two of my best radios in my home 
and tuning them each to one of those stations to to prepare myself for the performance. Or have like one left channel, one right channel. Yeah, put my somehow. headphones on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's how we were, that's how we we documented it. Oh, cool. I'm also excited yeah. about the idea of it happening in, in a city I know, you know, tomorrow. Like, I love this idea of a, a collaboration between stations. Like, on Radio Survivor, we love to proselytize about how radio stations are not in competition with each other, but they're collaborating, that they that together they make up the media landscape of the cities where they are. And so mm-hmm. I love the idea of your art piece making that like very concrete, like the one piece of art is being played on two radio stations simultaneously. But, but separate at the same time. That's amazing. Do you, do you recall what sort of reaction you got about the piece? No. (laughs) That's okay. I don't don't think we got any reviews. Right. It's just, that's radio. (laughs) I know. I would. I would love to do something like that again. It sounds amazing, Go and for it. you know, because I've never heard of, um, I've never heard of this exact type of project being done. I I know of radio stations that have swapped signals, um, <laughs> so it's sort of um, a different take on that. I don't know if we broke any FCC rules, but I don't think we. Did. I don't How think funny, we did. Yeah. How funny. And yeah, yeah and probably not, not. It seems not 100% to, legit. Most listeners would think you're referring to swear words, but you're, you mean like if you broadcast the wrong call letters on the opposite <laughs> station. That's so, um, yeah. We know that, you know, Amanda Don Christie, a former guest on Radio Survivor, who taught Jennifer and I a whole lot about transmission arts during that interview, um, performed a nine radio station piece. Of music that was actually go that went out on um, mostly on shortwave stations. I don't know if it was simultaneous, uh, but it, it it it's reminiscent of this piece. Yours yours was uh, in, in on an er- in an earlier year for keeping track, but I hope you're not. It, well, uh, but having the different having the entirely different performances on each station is what's really interesting to me that you listen to simultaneously. I I love that. Super fascinating and. Yeah, it's something that should be done again, I think. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, and we're clearly excited by it. <laughs> well, and and I love that you that you revealed that you worked in radio as a teenager. So Yeah, I actually got my not to give away my age, but I actually got my I think I believe it was called a third class radio telephone operator's license when you used to have to go to the regional FCC office and take a written test in order to get a license to to be a radio announcer. That's so great. And, I had and what, to pass that when I was a teenager. <laughs> and what kind of radio? So were you a DJ? Yeah, I was just a, an announcer on the weekends at, at a local a local station. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's interesting to um, think about how that's connected with, you know, some of this later work that you did and yeah connections that you had in community and college radio as well so yes the many the many threads that we like to unravel and then a little bit later you did something that's kind of related to podcasting which is kind of a next iteration of that and on radio survivor we've talked a lot about the early history of podcasting and and there were sites like blog talk radio so i was Mm -hmm. i was intrigued that you also did a project um that was 
in 2010 a phone improv show on Blog Talk Radio that was a streaming festival. And I'm guessing that in 2010, there weren't really that many streaming festivals at the time. <laughs> so I, I'm curious about that in that whole like blog talk radio early podcasting scene. And so maybe just like talk a little bit about what what that was all about. Well, this is this is my favorite question you've asked because no one because <laughs> no one asked me about the phone improv show. Oh, um, good. <laughs> I, I love I love that little piece. And what's interesting is it's so relevant in light of the past year of people doing live performances on Zoom and Facebook Live and other platforms. So the phone improv show, our theme was phone it in. <laughs> you get the joke. Um, the phone improv show was created as part of the Improviser Festival based out of Birmingham, Alabama. It, and it was a month-long festival held simultaneously in five different cities across the U.S., celebrating the 30-year anniversary of the International Journal of Free Improvisation, which is called The Improviser. So it's called The Improviser Festival. Now, so since I wasn't in any of the five cities, I organized 16 audio programs featuring live musical improvisations utilizing phones. So just usually just, I mean, this was pre, you know, smartphones pretty much. So it was just landlines and old burner phones mostly, <laughs> Their people were calling in and doing their improvs over the phone. Um, I mean, there were people doing fancier streaming stuff already, but I wanted something that could be accessible to anyone, not just computer music geeks, you know. Um, and so then I just put the word out. Um, I don't even remember how. I mean, this was kind of early Facebook, but I think maybe we use Facebook, but I think just generally we put the word out different ways. And mailing list probably and uh i had a few people we i ended up getting a few people on that show that i had never met before and i've not heard from since you know <laughs> um but uh, you know we had them calling in and doing their improvs over the phone and streaming it over blog talk radio which was this free streaming service it was just audio no video uh, they're still around um and uh I also streamed a couple of events live from the festival in Birmingham. There was an improvised music street parade we, we broadcast live. And, um, of course, there were all these artifacts from the poor technology, but I love that. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and uh, like we were talking about earlier, um, it was streamed via blog talk radio, which is really low bandwidth compression, you know. It sounds, and, it sounds and like voicemail for, for the kids right, right. these days. <laughs> right, like, right. There you go. And, it, you know, plus you have the sound of, well, you still have the bad, phones still have bad sound, so you can imagine <laughs> all the artifacts from the phones. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, and that's just part of the charm to me, you know, that's, um, so when, when people talk about using, I don't know, uh, Jack Trip or whatever to do high-quality digital streaming, it doesn't really excite me too much because I love that. I love all the, the graininess and the noise and, and everything. You know, and, and also, I didn't do phone improv show under my own name. I used a generic, I used a pseudonym. Um, I call myself Generic Now Man for that. Um, and I do that a lot with my transmission art stuff um, because it just frees me up to do whatever I want without any expectations. So my name has been very associated with the balloon stuff that we talked about earlier. So I usually work. Uh, anonymously or semi-anonymously when I do transmission or telematic things. And I did several pieces in the past year, but 
no one knew it was me. Ooh. So can you talk about them or is, or do you like to keep that secret? Should you would keep... need to speak to one of my other uh, <laughs> identities, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to do it. We'll have to do another show with another identity. We'll have to use a voice changer, right? Um, I, I love hearing about these older pieces. And I feel like, you know, in this time where we're spending so much time on video, um, it, it, it sounds so refreshing to have... <laughs> a phone improv show, you know, with our old school phones. And, you know, you're mentioning, you know, that you're continuing to do transmission art. You know, what is it about transmission art that's so, that you enjoy so much, that's so freeing? Um, yeah, that's, that's, oh, where, scratch that itch. Let me see. Um, well, you know, um, I've not been crazy about attending Zoom concerts, pretty much. Um, I get bored really fast. I'm, I'm not so interested in imitating what exists already as I am subverting technology, um, though in a fun, artistic way, not not a mean and destructive way. Of course. Um, yeah. Um, I like over-the-air transmission because it's so accessible and also because it's so messy and unpredictable. <laughs> and... Um, I like transmission rather than internet. Um, you know, I like the idea that anyone with a super cheap device can tap into whatever's being broadcast. I mean, you can literally build a radio out of like a few, you know, a battery and a, a speaker. You know, um, I've been I've been threatening to get a ham radio for years, but the, the talk about rules, the FCC rules. Ugh. Um, but yeah, I mean. Um, what was what was the point? I mean, why do I enjoy transmission arts? And just because of that accessibility, because of it, it goes outside the boundaries of what we think of. I mean, anybody, you know, somebody driving a cab down the street, you know, some cab driver could listen to it. You know what I'm saying? It's it get, it gets into places where where the art wouldn't go normally. Yeah, like anybody can have access to it. So. But also, I just like the, the the messiness of it as well. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been interesting talking to a number of people on the show and and learning, you know, having our ears opened about transmission art. That even things like baby monitors, you know, that oh, that's yeah. transmission art. Or, you know, if you have a a video camera that has audio hooked up to your doorbell, you know, I. I've used some of that on my radio show before, <laughs> like, you know, cause that's, those are interesting sounds that you can incorporate into something. So yeah, I, th- I mean, to me, it's really interesting to think about um, all the different forms that transmission art can take. And we're definitely seeing more kind of transmission uh, being utilized by people in the pandemic for, you know, drive-in movies and graduations. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, beyond, um, you know, the more more mainstream, I guess, uses of that, mm-hmm. but, um, but more people might be becoming yeah. familiar with it in yeah. that respect. I had a few more questions in there to conclude with. Um, I could ask, what's exciting you currently about sound art? Um, I could ask if people are unfamiliar with it, where should they look to find it? Um, or I could simply ask if there's anything else that you want to share with us. So your choice on the final question. I don't have anything else that I feel a pressing need to share with you. Okay. <laughs> um, 
I guess, uh, you know, it's been a rough year for everybody. So I feel like uh, my output's been kind of uh, odd as an artist over the past year. Uh, but like I say, I mean, I didn't feel like focusing on my ego so much this year. And I just wanted, that's one reason I, I made anonymous art this year. Because I just wanted to make art and not worry about anything else. But as far as where to find, you know, other sound art, I mean, well, there's, there's a for-profit company called Powland based in Amsterdam um, that represents some very nice sound sculpture works. And you can find them at shop.powland.com. And they're very focused on art objects that can be sold. So when you're thinking of sound art as a marketable form, go to powland.com. And it's actually quite good material. <laughs> so, um, But an artist that's a bit outside that, who does a combination of installation and performative work, is, I don't know if you pronounce her first name, Rai or Ri, I think it might be Ri, uh, R-I-E, Nakajima, Ri Nakajima. She's from Japan, but she's based in Europe. And I've only seen her work on video, but I absolutely love it. She makes these fragile sculptures that make quiet sounds and they're they're so fragile that they can break and they're sort of connected to the elements around them in that way um they're hard to explain but you can check her out online but as far as where to find sound art i suppose you can it depends on what you want to define that as i mean there's certainly as we've talked about there's all the stuff that that seems to get pulled under this umbrella so, um, kind of too general a question to answer. <laughs> yeah, I think we've given, I think throughout the whole interview, we've given people a lot of paths that they can take for their own exploration of sound art. So, it is where you find it, I suppose. <laughs> That's a great place to conclude. Judy Dunaway, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. Sure, thank you. Thanks for having me. Sound art is where you find it. Judy Dunaway, who's an adjunct professor in the History of Art Department at Massachusetts College of Art and Design, has an article that you can read online, the forgotten 1979 MoMA Sound Art Exhibition. Links in the show notes for today's episode of Radio Survivor. This was episode number 292. Radio Survivor is a podcast that you can subscribe to wherever you get your time-shifted radio on the Apple Podcast Store, on the Google Podcast Store, on Stitcher, on Spotify. It's free on all these places. Subscribe. Every week we bring you news of community radio, college radio, sound art, and the like. On behalf of Jennifer Waits, who produced today's episode, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.